Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. All right, who here this morning loves feedback? Right? Right? That's what I thought. I mean, I don't know what it is about feedback, but the connotation of feedback is like, it's like a bad word. I mean, you don't even have to put a qualifier of negative feedback or critical feedback in front of it. Just the bare feedback feels to us like, no, thank you. Or at least we assume that if we're doing things well, then there's no way we should be getting any feedback. Right? But you want to know the interesting thing? If you look at and kind of study the people that are really growth-minded and that continue to learn and change and grow, do you want to know what they love? Well, maybe they don't love feedback. I mean, there's something about seeing what other people see that you don't see that's not the most pleasant experience, but they long for feedback. The people who are growth-minded always want to hear how others are experiencing things. They go, hey, how did you experience me in that meeting, in that presentation. Or they wonder, hey, how did I do when I disciplined our, our little boy before dinner tonight? Right? Or they go, hey, why, do you, why is it that I keep having conflict in this relationship? Can I talk about it with you and get some feedback? Feedback is actually incredibly helpful for growth. We make progress often as we see things that we don't see naturally ourselves. And I think the same could be said about the word repentance in the Christian life. Nobody jumps at that word. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I like, like the word repentance. It makes us feel some kind of way. But there perhaps is nothing more important to growth and progress in the Christian life than repentance. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, of course, was after repentance in the church, not to start a whole other section of the church. He wanted change, reform, growth within the church, not to break off and divide the church. But here's what he says when he nailed his list of changes of growth for the church in the 16th century. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I mean, maybe another analog here would be directions, asking for directions. Right? People don't ask for directions for a whole variety of reasons, right? I mean, sometimes it's because they don't think they need help. Um, sometimes it's because they don't want to admit they need help. But um, <laughs> I, th I think one of the interesting things when you think about directions is that the, the old sort of stereotype that men don't ask for directions is actually true. <laughs> like if you look at all of the research and statistics, there's something about men mentally and psychologically that makes them not want to ask for help. Um, I don't know what it is other than like somehow like knowing your way or being able to figure out the way more easily like attach to the identity of a man or makes a man feel important than a woman. But it, like across all research studies, men don't ask for help. They're more concerned, I think, about how they're getting somewhere 
rather than if or when they get there. Um, and so they don't quite ask for help. But I think the, if, if you go, okay, well, when does someone ask for help? They ask for help and they ask for directions when the destination they're trying to get to is more important <laughs> than some of the detours or the, the deviations to the path that they've taken. They realize, like, oh, I can't keep figuring my way around. I need to get somewhere. I, the destination is important. Repentance is turning back to the destination. Repentance is turning directionally somewhere else. But it's not just about location. It's primarily about relationship. It has to do with trust. Repentance is that moment where we say, I've been trusting in something or something else, and I'm going to tell someone about it, that's confession, and then I'm going to turn, that's repentance, back to trust in the Lord. It is a complete reorientation. And Luther's point that repentance is the entire life of a Christian is one that we need to hear. Because I think your growth and mine, more into the likeness of Jesus, hinges on it. We need to learn how to repent. And so the question I think is like, if, if repentance is actually a gift, if repentance is something good that the Lord is inviting us into, why is it that we so consistently run from repentance rather than run toward it? Why do we run from repentance rather than run toward it? So this morning, we're going to dig into Naaman. Um, now, you could probably say his name is Naaman um, or Naaman, but whatever, however you pronounce it, any way you would like. Um, it's clear that if you ask Naaman if he wants to repent, he would probably say Naaman. Um, but come on, pastor joke. Um, but unlikely as it is, his name is pleasant. Like his name means pleasant, good. And in this story, we encounter him as that. He is this incredibly pleasant character for us to learn from. And so I, I, I just need to confess, like, I wrestled with this passage all week. Like, I, I mean, this thing messed with me. And I couldn't realize why the Lord had put it on my heart that I needed to teach this passage for this lesson that we're going through in the gospel-centered life, which is all about repentance. But, but then, like, as I'm sort of wrestling with the Lord, I realized that the wrestle, he blessed me with this the word repentance doesn't actually appear in the passage in English. So the word for repentance that's most commonly used in Hebrew is shuv. And that word appears in the passage in Hebrew. But in English, repentance never occurs in the passage, except for right in the middle of the passage, these two other words are used for the Hebrew word shuv, which makes me realize that the way the Lord's trying to bless us this morning is that he wants to redefine repentance for us. And he's going to use the story of Naaman to do it. Because the, even the word repent has a connotation that we need to leave behind so that we can receive the gift of repentance. Okay, so let's get into this. What we need to do is we need to see the human view of repentance, the divine view of the repentance, and then we got to look at your view of repentance, okay? The human view, the divine view, and your view. Okay. Now that we've got the lay of the land with the story, what I want to do is jump back in um, at verse 8. So up to this point in verse 8, you've seen Naaman is a leper, and he's a great man, the commander of the army, and the king of Syria sends him to Israel, and the king of Israel freaks out, and then all of a sudden, 
you know, Elisha appears on the scene and is like somehow figured out, hey, why don't you send him to me and I'll deal with this problem. So let's pick it up right there. Here's, ch- here's chapter five, verse eight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house, carrying all with him his $5 million of precious metals and clothing, standing outside of Elisha's front door. And what's he do? Elisha's like, I got this figured out. I'm going to get my assistant to set up a Zoom call, and uh, we just need audio. I don't need to see you. I just have a message for you. And Naaman's like, excuse me? I, I am a great man. I, I am the commander of the army of Syria. I am highly favored. And instead, he hears Elisha's message and recoils. What's Elisha's solution? Right? Go and dip in the Jordan seven times and you will be restored. Want to know what that word is? Repentance. Go and dip in the Jordan and you will be repented. And how does Naaman respond? He's angry. And he went away, verse 11, and behold, I thought he surely would come out to me and stand in front of me and wave his hand all hocus pocus like, right? And, and cure the leprosy and call upon the name of his God, right? This whole spectacle. But no, Elijah says, go ahead, go wash in the Jordan. You see, Elisha's solution doesn't match up with Naaman's speculation. Naaman speculates, I think this is what should happen. This incredible man of God will do some sort of thing over the spot, and then all of a sudden, magic, I will be healed. Naaman says, I think this is how things should go. And you know what? When we get convinced of how things should go, you want to know what we have a hard time doing? Going along with the way the Lord says things should go, right? When we're convinced by our own speculation, by our own thought process of how things work, when we're man-centered in our approach to the solution, it's usually because we spend a lot of time in speculation. And Naaman's speculation blinds him to God's solution, I think the same is true for us when it comes to repentance. We often have this sort of way of thinking about it, this way in which we approach it, that we're sure that it's like this. But the reality is, it's not like that at all. Much of that is our own speculation rather than God's revelation. So look at this. Let's keep reading here. Because the servants come and they save the day. Check this out. All right, so so he turns... And went away in rage. But the servants came near to him. Have you ever tried to reason with somebody who's in rage? Like, have you ever tried to be like, hey, listen, um, I'm not trying to help you repent here, right? And no, it doesn't go so well. But they have this sort of like priestly mindset where they come to him very gentle and say, hey, listen, look at this. My father. Wow. He's their commander. Right, he's, he's, there. he's in charge. These aren't children. But they come and say, listen, my father, it is a great word 
What was was Naaman? He was a great man. But this is a great word that that he has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said, wash and be clean? And somehow the servants reason with Naaman, and he goes. And he goes to the water, and he dips seven times, and he comes out clean. And this whole scenario makes me wonder, what if for repentance, we have more speculation about it rather than revelation from God about it? Like, what if our whole approach to it is is man-centered and needs to be peeled back such that we get God's eyes and God's heart for what it is? What if we need revelation rather than speculation, something that God given rather than man thought? So the man-centered view of repentance is penance, right? The man-centered view of repentance is that, like, it's penance. I have something to pay in order to to fix this problem. And our approach about repentance is, it's all fire and brimstone. It's it's like angry Naaman, angry preacher. Go, you, you turn or burn repentance. But the reality is, it has a completely different view in God's mind. But we approach repentance from our own standpoint with speculation. And if you grab those two categories, we discussed a bit last week of legalism on the one hand and license on the other hand. You see that someone who is more of a legalist, who keeps the rules for their own sake, who feels like, I'm, I do what's right, but not because of delight. I just do it because it somehow makes me feel good and better. That person is probably thinking in her heart, Repentance? is dreadful. Like, it's only for those irreligious people. I am religious. I come to church. I read my Bible. I do the right thing. Repentance is for them, not for me. And then on the other hand, if you're thinking more of somebody who defaults to license, you're saying, hey, I I don't obey anything. I do what I think is right. I do what feels good to me, what's right by me. I don't do what others say. I do what I feel. And the, the, the licentious person would say, hey, repentance? That, that sounds outdated. Like, that's only for the religious people, right? For those church people, for those Bible people. Repentance must be for them. It's certainly not for me. I don't need to turn or to change my ways at all. You see, we have a way of thinking repentance is for everyone but us. But the reality is God is trying to give us a gift in repentance. Speculation has so warped our view of repentance such that it becomes penance, and we approach all of our problems thinking, what must I pay to make this go away? I remember early on in our marriage, I I learned this pretty quick, right? Um, If I was in trouble, I would always think, what can I pay to make this go away? But Laura can sniff out that kind of sorry from, from a mile away, right? She can, my wife, she can see. She's like, hey, listen, that's not going to work, buddy, right? It's not like, can I show enough remorse, right? I'm so grieved by this that you'll just sort of let it go. It's not that like, I, can, I can resolve. I'm never going to do it again, babe. Never again. And then therefore, it's, it goes away. She can sniff that. It's not that I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to do enough dishes, right? So that like all of a sudden you forget about that or I'm not clean this and therefore that will be gone. Like, I cannot pay to make it go away. That just does not work. But that is the way that we approach problems. 
That is our human way of speculation rather than the divine way of revelation. Now let me show you the divine view of repentance. It's so breathtaking in here. So if we keep reading the story, Naaman dips himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh is repented. His flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child. He has got that baby skin all about him, and uh, he was clean. And then he repented Right? So his flesh was repented, his flesh was restored, and then he returned, then he repented back to Elisha, the man of God. So he comes back, all of his chariots, all of his horses, all of his money, back to Elisha, who he'd torn away from in rage. And he says, hey, listen, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept this present from your servant. Right? Naaman came and wanted Elisha to stand before him. He was the great one. But now he comes turning back, trying to stand before the great man of God, Elisha. Right? Naaman wanted Elisha to pray to his God and do something over the spot. And now Naaman comes back to Elisha, praising the Lord as his own God. Right? Do you see the shift? Right? Naaman wants Elisha to come out and serve him and do something about the leprosy. Instead, he comes back and says, Elisha, I am your servant. It's the complete flip because he's seen that only the true God can restore. And, and, and the true God has given a gift to Naaman that Naaman can't repay. Look at Elisha's response there. I, I, I can't accept any gifts. No, as the Lord lives, I will accept nothing. There is no price for this. This is beyond payment. You're thinking in terms of penance. That's not what repentance is. I'm thinking in terms of restoration. That's what repentance is. Restoration from a God-centered view is all, repentance from a God-centered view is all about restoration. In God's economy, you can't pay it back. There is no price for it. It doesn't matter $5 million in precious stones that Naaman brings along with him, right? The Lord is great, and his word is true, even though Naaman was running from it, even though he wouldn't do according to it. This is a word of restoration. And here's what I've been praying, church. I've been praying that this morning the Lord would redefine how we view repentance such that we might actually gain a lifestyle of it rather than a reaction to it. Like that, that repentance would show so shift for us because we see its goodness, because we see its gift, because we see its power, that we would want to do it every day. That we would want to repent. That we would desire to see a, a continual pattern of repentance. Yes, repentance has to happen initially once. But it has to happen ongoing in terms of lifestyle. And here's what I want to do. I want to show you the gems in this passage about repentance. Here's the first one. You need to see from this story that repentance is coming home. Repentance is coming home. This is the linguistic key here, because in the Hebrew, you have two letters that make up the word shuv. The first is sheen, which looks like a pictograph of teeth, like biting. And the whole idea there is that the letter represents destruction, calamity, burning, sharp things. And then that's, that's completely 
tied next to the word bet, which is in every way the picture of a house. It's basically the phrase, honestly, by the two letters means burn the house down. That's what repentance means. But the problem is we're pretty sure that repentance means turn or burn rather than burn then turn. The whole point of repentance is that you burn the house down because you've built something and are living somewhere that's so destroying your life that you need to actually run home. The point is burn the house down because I've wandered like the prodigal into the pig pen and I hate it here. I don't ever want to come back here, so I want to destroy the house like it's ashes because then if I come back and see the ashes, I'll go, yeah, I tried living there. It didn't work. I want to come home to my father. Repentance is burn, then turn. Burn the house down so that you could go home. Like, this is a word of restoration because God wants you to see there are places in your life. And I wonder, are there places in your life right now where you're living that you know you're not home and the house that you've built needs to get burned and you need to turn and walk the other way? Because you're living like a wanderer rather than living like a child. You're living there in the pig pen rather than living there in the father's house. Repentance is coming home. And what you know is that the Lord will receive you home. Repentance is also a great word. A great word. I mean, think about that. Like, it's emphatic when the servants come and approach Naaman. They say, has he actually said won't you do it? It's, it's a powerful word. It is a great word. It's the invitation that we need. And it's a word of power. It's a word of restoration. It's a word of change. God's solution is different than our speculation, such that when we hear the word repent, we need to realize the invitation to a great, better future is at stake right there. It is a great word. And it actually works. Not only is repentance a great word, but repentance is cleansing. He goes and he washes, right? right? This is the symbolic angle, I think, on the word repentance in this passage, right? And another gem for sure, because what you see here is that repentance is a kind of washing, a kind of cleansing. And now don't get mistaken that it's Naaman's repentance that heals him. But it is Naaman's repentance that puts him in the water, I don't know about you, but like last time I checked, you can go stand in a shower and not get clean. The water actually has to come on, right? But if you don't go put yourself in the place, you can be sure that water is never going to get on you, right? You've got to go and repent, but it doesn't conjure up cleansing, but it puts you in the place of cleansing. Repentance is what gets you to that spot where God could pour out cleansing water upon you. And can I just play a little bit here? Like, would it be possible for us to bathe in a way that's not more regular, but like a little bit more regularly spiritual? Because I don't know about you, but like probably most of you have not showered just once. I mean, like probably, probably not, right? And is there a clue there? That if we need a continual kind of cleansing for our physical body, 
then we need a continual kind of cleansing for our lives spiritually. Like, could you actually take a bath or take a shower with a spiritual lens to go, yes, Lord, as much as I need this, I need you. Because I, I, have you ever felt like if you haven't taken a shower in a few days or maybe longer, I don't know how long you've gone, do you start to feel some kind of way? Like you start to feel like weird physically and emotionally, like stuff's just not right. Like seriously, we need to be cleansed continually and we have to put ourselves in the place of cleansing and God has promised that a flood of cleansing water will flow. Repentance is cleansing, but it goes, goes far beyond this, right? We see repentance is healing. But the, the prophet Elisha says, peace, go in peace. That's that comprehensive well-being he's giving to Naaman. Not only healing, but it's humbling. This great man comes with his ideas, and, and yet God's solution puts him into a dirty river, right? Such that he has to obey and submit to the word of somebody who puts him on a Zoom call, you know? Like, it's humbling, and it's at the same time dignifying. Do you realize this? Where does Naaman go after this? He, he, he returns to his post, right? He's about to be out of work. He's about to be out of a calling. And yet, when he comes to repent, it means that he's then sent back into his calling, back into his post to stand before the king of Syria. And he says, hey, I don't even want to get unclean again. So he says, let me take some dirt from Israel back to my homeland so that I can remember and give sacrifices to the Lord so that I may continue to be clean. It's healing, it's humbling, it's dignifying, and it's priceless. Don't miss that. Repentance is this priceless gift. Not all the money in the world, and certainly not all the money that Naaman brings could pay for it. The divine view of repentance is restoration. And if you think about it, the clearest revelation of restoration, of course, is the study that we're doing on the gospel. It is the gospel itself. Right? The gospel is the good news that humbles us because you're a sinner in need of a savior. The gospel is the good news that cleanses us. No matter how contaminated we are from sin, his blood can make the foulest clean. The gospel is the good news that's priceless. There is inheritance that is unfathomable. There is such riches and treasure untold in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that's dignifying because the living God has said, I love you even though you've been living apart from me. The gospel is the good news that is a great word because it actually works. There's actually power in it. And the gospel is the good news that we should come home. Jesus confirms that, that when we turn in repentance, we will come home and not merely be welcomed, but, but we'll find out that the Father has wanted us. He wants us home aching for us as we're gone. Repentance is not penance. It's restoration. It's the gift that leads to life. The only gift that leads to life. All other approaches end in decay, just like leprosy in this story. So speculation causes us to run from God. Restoration and revelation cause us to run to God in repentance. But how about your view? What is your view of repentance? 
I think it's odd, but Gehazi is sort of like this wrench thrown in the whole story, isn't he? You're like, you think it's done. <sighs> Hallelujah, healing. And then, what, what do I do with Gehazi? You remember? Gehazi comes and sees the whole spectacle. And then he realizes, how, how could this guy repent? How could he get restored and we get nothing from it? And so he runs after Naaman and gets some of the treasure for himself. And then he goes and hides it, and he comes and stands before his master. And of course, Elisha says, where have you been? He lies. And then this incredible reversal happens, right? This reversal where the, the, the leprosy that was on Naaman, that was cursed upon Naaman, has now been cursed upon him. The complete flip. So what do we learn? I think Ahazi is sort of like the climax of the story. Right? Imagine like a, a, a scene from a movie and the director and, 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 the, and the videographer, they're all locked in on, on Elisha and on Naaman. And all of a sudden, the story starts to resolve. And it's like Gehazi is the camera sort of flips around and turned on us, shines the light on us to go, hey, wait a second. How do you actually feel about this kind of restoration? How do you actually feel about the unclean being cleaned? How do you actually feel about the wayward being returned home? How do you actually feel about this whole dynamic of a restoring, kind, and gracious God? And it reminds me of the, the prodigal son. It reminds me of that story where Jesus tells about the son who's squandered the inheritance of the father and then repents and turns home. Of course, he comes home the whole way thinking in terms of speculation, Right? Here's what I'm going to do. I'll be a servant in my father's house. And there's, he knows there's no way he could repay. But he comes home thinking on his best thoughts. And then he's surprised by God's thoughts as the father runs to him. Runs to him, welcomes him home, throws a party, puts a robe on him, celebrates the fact that his son was lost and is now found. You see, the speculation in our view of repentance is that repentance is like you having that meeting with your disappointed boss. And you're like, I don't want to go there because the boss is going to reprimand me and I've got to then figure out how do I pay to make this go away. But the reality is repentance is much more like returning to your delighted father where you're reunited with the family and the father wants to throw a party. And unfortunately, Gehazi doesn't want any of that. You see, just like the sons in the story, the prodigal son, Gehazi can't stand it. I mean, the younger son, he said, I hate it here in the pig pen. I hate it here. I'm going to burn this house, and I'm going to go back to my dad's. But the older son, he goes, I actually kind of like it here, but I can't stand I can't stand this party for this son. I'm the one who deserves it. And he is the one in the story who doesn't repent. And in fact, Gehazi is the one who looks like him, doesn't repent. 
the Father's heart is on display here. And I think it's on display in the words of Elisha. If Gehazi points to the older brother in the story, then Elisha points to the heart of the Father in that great phrase, did not my heart go? Did not it fade? Did not it fall when you turned and you went to get the money from Naaman? That's the heart of the father. So full of love for his sons and his daughters. And in fact, I think it's precisely that we have forgotten the heart of the father that causes us to run from repentance. But it's the heart of the father when we remember it that compels us to run toward repentance. The heart of the Father invites us that even though we have turned in sin, if we turn again, he'll receive us with rejoicing. And what if we believe that, church? Like, what if we believed that, that restoration actually came through repentance rather than reprimand? Like, what if we believed that honesty was worth it and we started confessing our sins to one another? Just like James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What if there was healing on the end of confessing, telling, and power for repentance, turning? What if we began to, to, to see that a lifestyle of repentance was more about the destination we were headed and that we didn't need to worry so much about our own detours and deviations because the Father wants us back. He wants us back. Where have you been? What is your view of repentance? Is it restoration? Do you sense the heart of the Father saying, come home? Only when you do will you commit to a lifestyle of repentance. And only when you do will you find yourself growing consistently more into the likeness of the only true son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to remember now your heart? We run from repentance because we forget you. But God, will we remember you this morning and turn in repentance to see your heart of restoration, healing, and to see the offer of true joy that you're giving to us. God, we want to be a church that is growth-minded, that sees the potential that each of us has to grow more and more into your likeness, to not settle in the faith, but to continue to learn, be changed, and transformed by the gospel. So help us put this piece into, into place so that repentance becomes the norm for us day by day, week by weeks. W would our time meeting with you be characterized by repentance and faith? Would our conversations in gospel community and our small groups be characterized by repentance and faith? Would our soulful friendships with one another be characterized by repentance and faith so that we might continue to turn and trust you, finding you, Father, satisfying like nothing else? finding that we were made to live in your house. Do that, Jesus, by your spirit, work, convict, comfort, challenge each of us how we need it this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.